Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. A doctor, one of the heads of houses present, remarked that these six gentlemen were expelled for having too much religion, and it would be appropriate to investigate the conduct of some who had too little. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're going back to London in the 1760s to listen to a sermon by John McGowan, Troy. How's life over there? How's, uh, what's up? To tell me, to tell me about, <laughs> tell me about all the things. Things are great. We uh, we had a day off from school today, which was pretty fun. I got to it was a Friday, but we didn't have to go to work, and so uh, we went to. Oh my goodness! One of my, I'm burying the lead today. I went to the world's small, the narrowest, narrowest hotel. So oh. it is. It is. I don't know if it's Guinness Book Records, but it's, it is recorded. It is officially the world's most narrow hotel. It's not too far from where my family and I live. So we went there. We didn't stay at the hotel. We just got some lunch, mm. but. Uh, we it is narrow the stairs it was kind of actually uh, it was kind of difficult to get around so I can yeah. I, I can see both why you would build it for those na- be able to say you did it but also because the guy who built it he was building it to kind of he was from this local town and he wanted to he wanted to uh, put his town on the map with something he was an architect so he built the world's most narrow hotel uh, and he did but also it, it was a narrow hotel I mean it's, it's you you won that prize but that was kind of fun to say so been there I've done that Joel how you doing I'm doing good, yeah. But for our listeners who don't know, Troy's a, sh- a tall man. He is how tall? You're like six <laughs> three or something like that. Yeah, like that something. So yeah, something seven foot, something like that. But uh, <laughs> so laying down, you know, you'd have to strategically. You might bump your head against the your, the wall and the feet. You know, you might be yeah. pinned in there on a narrow. But to be path. fair, I am living in Indonesia and I've lived in Cambodia and China, so I'm used to ducking and not was, having yeah, headspace here. Situations that. Uh, are designed to accommodate an average person much smaller than you. <laughs> the only time I feel genuinely frustrated about my height, like where I'm like, this is just, there's not enough space, is when I'm flying on an airplane for a really long time. Hmm. That's when I, my knees start to ache and I'm like, man, I wish I could just stretch these legs. That's pretty much, I feel like, the only time where I ever, ever feel like my height is a detriment to me. And to be honest, I feel that way flying in America and over here. So that it doesn't really, yeah. it doesn't feel good either way. Yeah, that sounds awful. I will say one of the perks of being a small, skinny guy is uh, I don't I don't encounter those issues. Plant fly for me is great. <laughs> wouldn't I, say, I just wouldn't say Joel, you're, you're small. But I would say you are you are a bit shorter than me, so it's it's not a problem. But I don't look at you and think small. I think definitely slightly above average would probably five, be ten, and one hundred and forty-five pounds for the <laughs> listeners. That's that's yes. my physique. Yeah. Okay. Um. Life's good over here. It is hot, which is awesome. I mean, I say hot. I mean hot for February. It's in the 60s. Yeah. and We had a few days peak in 70. It's out of control. It's wild. It feels <laughs> like something is wrong with the world, like we're at the beginning of some type of disaster movie. But at the same time, uh, it's real nice outside. So um, we're not complaining too much. But it does feel very strange because normally in my part of town, we are literally below zero uh yeah. at this time so it's wild See, i remember two years ago three years ago when i was riding a bike to work in february and it was miserably snowy mm-hmm. and icy all the time but it's el nino man the el nino is doing weird stuff to the world we had the okay. weirdest rainy season and then the weirdest dry season 
And then the weirdest rainy season ever. So it's just, it's, it's effects. And, uh, Joel, we have some positive responses to Revive Thoughts. We got an Apple five-star five star review from Jacob C.H. who said, Remember what God has done. Psalm 77, 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Your church history and classic sermons are a regular spiritual encouragement to my heart on my commutes to work. Thank you, Jacob from Ohio. Thank you, Jacob, for listening. We do really appreciate that. And I, I love when people tell me that when, what they're doing when they're listening because I, I remember so many times when I had long commutes, listening to a podcast can really go a long way. And so it's an honor that you, you include us in that window because I know how special that on the way to work or on the way back home from work time is when you've got a show. And then on Spotify, Delana Jones said, A most thought-provoking sermon. I have family and friends who are not following Christ that I would wish for them to hear this episode. She was worrying, referring to our uh, couple-month-back episode by D.L. Moody. So if you haven't listened to that one or you're thinking of friends that you'd like to listen to a sermon with, maybe that's the one you send them. And then we also want to shout out uh, some of our, our new Patreon. That's right. Ken B. joined our Patreon team. Thank you so much, Ken. And thanks for all of our Patreons for allowing us to keep making this show better. We appreciate it so much. Today is a bit of a bit of a unique bit of a unique sermon. It's, it's interesting. I think it's kind of fun. It was preached as a kind of result, a result, resort, retort, response to an event that took place at Oxford, and it's also a satire, which. Yeah. I think maybe it actually a first it was never show? preached. It's a it's an imagined sermon that was published in response mm-hmm. to something. So you're supposed to picture this sermon in a certain pl- as happening at a certain place at a certain time. And the guy is basically saying, "If I had preached, this is what it would have sounded like." Um, but it is the first. It is the first of its kind, and that it's also the first satire. Yeah. So this sermon is meant to be ridiculous to make a point. I don't know that we'll ever have another sermon quite like this. I had a listener and a friend uh, send this to me, and it was it was uh, it was definitely I, as soon as he sent it, he said, "I am laughing almost like every other line re- reading this thing. You should put it on your show." And I started reading. It. I was like, "Oh my goodness, this is like very solid, good satire. It's great." And I and the more I looked into the research of it the more i was like this this was a big deal at its time so it's i definitely wanted it on the show yeah it's certainly a very fascinating backstory in which we'll explain here but just prepare listeners ahead of time you know this is a a, a kind of a more fun episode we're going to take off our reality hat and we're going to put on our our satire hat you know maybe it would have been more appropriate if this came out on april fool's day or something like oh, that, that would have been nice yeah like that type of a of a special episode of revive thoughts but um because this sermon you know actually it started with this incident at harvard so we're actually going to start the back story by kind of setting up the events that took place and and this event took place in the year 1768 vice principal there at oxford was worried that uh, the six of us students there there was six students that uh, were talking about things they were talking about regeneration they were talking about inspiration they were talking about drawing near to god all things that you know sound good to us and that you would expect to be at a Christian institution, uh, but this raised the alarm for him because the tendencies of these six men were that they were Methodists, and Oxford at the time was a- very, very Anglican uh, as a church, and Methodists were very new on the scene, and this led on to a full investigation of these six men. And when it was over, the following exchange took place between the investigators here and Troy I was thinking we do a little bit of a radio theater oh what do you think of that yes I'll I'll be be Boswell 
Okay, I'll be Johnson here. Okay. Wait, you won't be, I can be Johnson. Okay. <laughs> Either way, you know, I'm not gonna pull you got, out of I'll the I'll be Johnson. Line. Okay, right, you, be, you be Johnson, I'll be Limelight. All right. Sir, this expulsion was extremely just and proper. What are they to do at university who are not willing to be taught but will presume to teach? Where is religion to be learnt but at a university? Sir, they were examined and found to be mighty arrogant fellows. But was it not hard, sir, to expel them? <laughs> For I am told that they were good beings. I believe they might be good beings, but they were not fit to be in the University of Oxford. A cow is a very good animal to be in a field, but we turn her out of the garden. And scene. End quote. Oh, man, I, I am very proud of that. Your, your accent was great. We definitely didn't re rehearse any of that. Like, we did not. So that was kind of on point. Uh so right now, I want to say something. Joel and I were talking about this before the episode, and it's kind of a good, important maybe moment to talk about the fact that uh, these guys were going to Oxford. They were showing Methodist tendencies. Methodist 300 years ago means something very different than Methodist today. When John, if you have not listened to our show much, maybe you're kind of new to church history, John and Charles Wesley, with the help of George Whitfield, they kind of start the Methodist movement. It is a very... Uh, Christ-centered, very biblical group. And, you know, there may be people who disagree with it on different, you know, matters of how to run the church, per se, but there was no denying that they loved Jesus and they were out there to win souls to Christ. Very different than if you were to go to a Methodist church today. Not saying all Methodist churches are this way, because I've not been to all Methodist churches, but they have a reputation for being very progressive, very much not in uh, in line with the idea that the Bible is inerrant and Christ was God. And it, don't say they won't believe that Christ is God, but they tend to struggle with progressivism, we'll put it that way. And this is a very different time. So when you're hearing Methodists, don't think of a Methodist from today's world. Think of a Methodist from uh, 300 years ago when you're hearing this story. Now, this expulsion led to what was called, like, quote, a pamphlet war. As people were writing their opinions all over this matter, all the people were upset that Oxford had done this. Uh, one of the first and most powerful pamphlets, though, like what, the one that the cutting edge was this one that we're about to go through by John McGowan called Priestcraft Defended. Now, John McGowan is not a famous individual that we know him today. Uh, he was born in 1726 at Edinburgh. As a young man, he was apprenticed to a weaver, and then he worked for some time as a baker. And when the Wesleyan movement, when the Methodists took off, he became converted, and then he began to work as a pastor in this new movement until 1766, when he switched denominations to join the particular Baptists. Now, it didn't seem to be like he thought the Wesleyans or Methodists were unchristian. He just agreed more with the particular Baptists. Uh, he was a Calvinist pastor at a time when Calvinism was actually kind of in decline in this area of England and, and met, you know, Methodists actually, uh, not all of them were Calvinists. There's a, many episodes we've done on John and Charles Wesley and, and George Whitfield. You can go check those out if you want more information on that. However, the main point was that even though he was a Calvinist pastor, he was actually very popular and well-liked in his region where Calvinism was declining. And it was also during this time where he began writing and uh, turned out he was pretty good at it. Very different style, very unique style, very controversial style. He was very ironic and very satirical. And so the sermon that we're about to listen to uh, was one of his big successes, one of his popular splashes. He wrote it under the title of a man who called himself the Shaver. And, you know, uh, what we would refer to today as a barber, right? Someone that we wouldn't call someone that shaves a shaver nowadays we would you know say go to your barber people don't really go to shavers in america anymore you know like they just shave at home 
Yeah. Which I I will say I went to the the hairstylist or the barber today. Yeah. But yeah, I've never I've never called them a shaver. But yeah, no, I know it's kind of it's definitely a different time there. Yeah. So the the shave and it this this term in and itself was satirical because it came from some Oxford administration that was referring to people that were expelled from Harvard and uh, the offhanded remark that one of them was a shaver, you know, came up in conversation. And so uh, McGowan kind of took that and run with, ran with that, that, you know, the, the unapproved of, the Oxford unapproved, the Oxford expelled, you know, they were shavers, they were barbers, they were working class. See, that was the implication that they're not sophisticated, invested people, that they are workers. And so uh, he stuck with that pen name, that pseudonym, as his as his writing name. So he would write under the the pseudonym of the Shaver. Another one of his most popular works is probably this one that's titled "Infernal Conferences or Dialogues of the Devil." Joel, tell me if you've ever heard of this before. Uh, there's these two demons talking to each other. They're discussing how to destroy humanity. And one of them is an uncle to the other, and the other is the nephew trying to kind of get advice. Have you ever heard of a book like that? I haven't. Are you expecting me to? <laughs> yeah, most people. Oh, man, Joel. Most people would immediately hear that and go, yes, that's Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, right? Oh, and that's that is actually. That's that embarrassing. is embarrassing. Right. It's one of his most famous. You need to okay, turn the okay. episode to off. To be go, honest go, with people. Go read Screw Tape Letters. People, I, I started Screw Tape Letters, and. I struggled real hard getting through there. I oh, mean, I yes. love me some C.S. Lewis. I love me your Christianity, but boy, Screw Tape Tellers was a hard read, and I didn't get really? that far into it. Okay, well, you've just turned off half of our listeners. I know, I know, I know. I've brought shame tape. to revive thoughts. I, I will say, I do think C.S. Lewis's best book, outside Narnia has its own thing, but it, of his other books, I think The Great Divorce is, the, is my favorite personally, but... I say screw tape letters is a legend. I, I students, whenever I, I give it to them to read or they look at it, they're like, this is so good. But the thing is, that book actually has an idea, existed almost 150 years before C.S. Lewis. And it was actually that book, Infernal Conferences, Dialogue of the Devils. I actually pulled it up on my computer. I was like, no way. Is that actually what that is? It is literally two demons. And he talks to other demons too. And the first opening letters are like, hey, nephew, how are you doing? He's like, oh, my dear sir, could you enjoy a devilish conversation with me about how to do this thing with humans? I was like, this is the same book. And I looked it up. I was like, is this, did C.S. Lewis ever give credit? Did he academically know this? And apparently it is an academically argued subject, whether C.S. Lewis copyrighted or new of this other book that says has almost the same premise as his book um, and whether it was intentional whether he was doing an homage to it whether whatever it is because the fact that two uncle nephew demons are giving advice on how to destroy humanity uh but it's supposed to be again a satire to show you what's going on in your real faith it is kind of an interesting coincidence that it happened. So I was like, whoa, I'd never heard of any of that. Um, I have no conclusions on whether or not C.S. Lewis stole it. But I did, think, I did think it was fascinating that it existed as a book 150 years before C.S. Lewis was even on the planet. And again, hopefully many other people will recognize, I, I don't think Screwtape Letters is a, is a particularly unknown work of his. So anyway, um, he wrote other books. The sermons he got, actually this sermon series about Priestcraft Defended became like a series and sequels and other sermons were added onto it. And it actually got difficult to tell who was, which ones were written by John McGowan 
and which ones were written by other people who were writing it under the, under this name. Like it became such a funny joke that everybody was doing it, was writing their own versions of the shaver, taking issues of the day and basically having this guy humorously defend them from the Bible, but misusing all the Bible passages as he did so. Uh, it, it, I mean, it reminds me of the Babylon B articles almost, right? Like we use those articles to make fun of things. Um, one of my favorites was, a uh, man graduating with Bible college degree, now ready to serve coffee at local coffee shop. And I was like, ooh, ouch. And then my time in life when I graduated Bible college, that was about what I was doing. So that one really stung. Um, but that's kind of what it was. By the way, if you have never listened to, a year and a half ago, we had the managing editor of the Babylon Bee come on our show to, t- to tickle us with hilarious joke. Now, we actually had a really deep and serious conversation about eugenics with him. But if you never listened to that episode, go back a year and a half, find the episode we did with Joel Berry. Uh, it's really, really, really good. Anyway, so that was it. The shaver getting out there, defending all these ideas that um, that are obviously bad in these ridiculous ways, as you're going to see very ironically, as you're going to see. I forgot about your barista stint. It wasn't that long. <laughs> it was only like six months. No, well, it was way less. It was three. It was like three months because they literally. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I was waking up every day at three a.m. to be at the store at four a.m. to. I just. I was like, this is my life. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> Man, all right. I, I'm putting screw tape letters back on my. List. To be fair, I mean that it was probably over twelve years ago that I attempted to read it. I feel like maybe I've I've matured and and uh you know the the man I was 12 years ago. Surely, yeah, he would have been annoyed by it. But now <laughs> now I'm I'm a I'm more sophisticated. I'll try to Okay, get we're going to keep, you know, just like how people on this show write in Eric keep with tabs. a K or, or or whatever. We're going to keep tabs on that. We're going to do a screw tape swatch on Joel and see how long and how well he does at getting through screw tape letters. I I'm very curious how this goes. We'll see. Yeah, I'm still not thrilled we'll see i don't know i i remember remember it bouncing off it pretty hard but we'll see okay (laughs) oh also troy uh, do you want to i'd love to get your thoughts on what would you say if anyone feels strange about maybe and a satirical approach you know, that it might come across as unsensitive or blasphemous or uh, mm. not taking mm. the word of God seriously. Uh, what are your thoughts on on something like that? Yeah, I, I think it's fair. And if and I would say if for you that causes you like issues, if you think it's bad, you probably shouldn't listen to the sermon because it's not. I think there's a, a balance between satire that is poking fun at the hypocrisy of people in a way that's trying to illuminate a point, like, hey, these people are saying one thing, but look what they really look like. And then there's satire that's just making fun of stuff for the point of just degrading or attacking or being irreverential and has no greater goal. I think a good person example of that is Jonathan Swift. We've actually, one of our earliest episodes was a sermon by Jonathan Swift. We should probably honestly do another one with him. And uh, he was like the king of satire and that he could really make a point. One of my favorite points that's always stood out with me was if you read Gulliver Travels, uh, he talks about when Gull- when Gulliver lands in Japan and basically the Japanese are like, the Japanese are like, oh, we heard that, you know, Europe was full of Christians. Um, and he's like, and they were like, except for the Netherlands, because they will trade with us and step on Mary's face. And he was making fun of the fact that, um, 
that the Dutch were claiming to be Christian, but they were trading with Japan. And when Japan had a rule, no Christians could trade with them. And they would put Mary's face out thinking because what they had learned from the Catholics that no Christian could step on it. And the Dutch were going like, uh, not that's no problem. We have no problem with icons. We don't respect Mary. We'll step on it and trade with you. But he was making fun of the fact that the Japanese were like, basically, oh, so the Dutch aren't Christian, which was the message they were getting. And he was highlighting like this thing that you're doing is bad. You know what you're doing is wrong. And the way he did it was through satire. And it always stood out to me the way he did it was just really, really effective. I think satire can be very powerful. And I always think of Elijah with the with the prophets of Baal yelling out, is Baal in the bathroom? You know, is Baal on vacation? Can he not hear you? Of course, Elijah doesn't believe Baal is a real God that he has to worry about, but he's he could have just said Baal's not real, but he makes fun of it in a way that's humorous. That I think sometimes that humor is more powerful. It's, it reminds me of Paul when Paul is like, oh, you know, you are so rich. I'm so hungry. You are so great. I'm so dumb. You know, in, in Corinthians where he's kind of like, you're so amazing. I wish I could be as good as you, but I'm just a lowly apostle. And I just think that 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 can sometimes be more effective at reaching people than just straightforwardly telling them the truth. All right. All right. Well, let's get into it. The debut publication of this ghostwriter, The Shaver, uh, bringing to us this uh, sermon called Priestcraft Defended. Here we hear McGowan give his defense of Oxford expelling the six students in this scenario, right? Uh, he's imagining giving the sermon before Oxford itself as he preaches, in air quotes, the text. Listen to his critiques and calling out of Oxford uh, for their expulsion of these six students. Addressing such an esteemed congregation, adorned with white bands, black gowns, and orthodox caps, I venture to deviate from the usual preaching path. Given the uniqueness of this occasion, I'll take the liberty to choose an unconventional text. It's a common practice, dear congregants, for most preachers to select a passage from Scripture as their text. After reading it twice, the Bible is often set aside, and the sermon proceeds with a discourse akin to what you might find in a newspaper, costing two pence and half penny. However, I am honored to diverge from this tradition. Today, I become the first to choose a text from a newspaper and draw insights from scriptural history. Having broken the ice, as we say, I anticipate that many clever preachers will follow suit. Our text today is extracted from St. James's Chronicle, dated Thursday, March 17, 1768, number 1099, printed by Henry Baldwin at the printing office, Whitefriars, Fleet Street. Now, if you kindly retrieve your newspapers from your pockets, we can read together the following paragraph. Extract of a letter from Oxford. On last Friday, six students from Edmund Hall were expelled from the university, this came after several hours of investigation before Mr. Vice-Chancellor and some heads of houses. The charge against them was for holding methodistical tenets and engaging in activities such as praying, reading, and expounding scriptures, as well as singing hymns in a private residence. The students defended their doctrines by referring to the 39 articles of the established church, highlighting the piety and exemplary nature of their lives. Despite this, the motion was overruled, and the sentence was pronounced against them. 
A doctor, one of the heads of houses present, remarked that these six gentlemen were expelled for having too much religion, and it would be appropriate to investigate the conduct of some who had too little. One of the men there was heard telling the student's chief accuser that the university was much obliged to him for his good work. Ladies and gentlemen, our text is admittedly a bit lengthy, but fear not, for in abundance lies our opportunity for contemplation. After all, in these times, creative sparks are not overly abundant, particularly among our esteemed clergy. Let us proceed in the traditional manner. Number one, we will thoroughly explore the content of our text. Number two, our aim is to draw a notable doctrine from the events described. Specifically, we argue that the actions of the vice-chancellor and heads of houses are justifiable, based on the historical behavior of clergy across ages and geographies. Number three, we will conclude with a special application. Let's start with an explanation, in doing which I must divide it into very small parcels, just as a skillful surgeon does the flesh of a hanged criminal when he dissects an organ. This Oxford, my beloved, is a city in the west of England, notable for a great university. A university is a place of learning, and it would do you good to see the numbers of hopeful young gentlemen who come from all parts of England in pursuit of learning. For that reason, all the colleges are frequently crowded, but you will say, what do they learn? To which I answer in the negative, as being much easier than the affirmative, for it appears from our text that there are some things which they do not learn. First off, pray. I mean, they do not learn to pray to God, it seems. This is not a part of the approved exercises of the students in that university, for our text says six young gentlemen were expelled from the university for praying. From here we may draw this inference, which is that if the vice-chancellor and the heads of houses expelled these six defenders for praying to God, then it is completely natural to suppose that they are not guilty of the crime themselves. Otherwise, they would have to fall under that reproof of Romans 2.1. Number two, to read and expound the scripture is another thing that seems to be prohibited there. Whether Rochester's poems, Tristram Shandy, and other books are esteemed orthodox and tolerated, I cannot say, but one thing is clear from our text that reading and expounding the scriptures is against the Oxonian law, for six young men were expelled from the university for reading and expounding the scriptures. Third, singing of hymns is another thing which they do not learn. This is also clear from the words, by singing of hymns, I mean praising of God for blessings received according to Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. But the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs cannot be done at the university by the heads of houses. For six young men were expelled from the university for the singing of hymns. Note, this was an extract we have from a letter at Oxford which shows that there are some people there who can write, and that although reading is dangerous there, yet an Oxonian may write with impunity. Last Friday. The better day, the better deed. Friday, you know, is a fast day, on which it would be fittest to go about a work of this importance when the judgment was not charged with bodily grossness, but purged with an empty belly. Last Friday, it was not a thing that happened in the dark ages of monkish ignorance, 
but what has happened in this enlightened age of Christianity. It was not when the university was tied hand and foot by popish prejudices and the heads of houses were obliged to submit to their betters, but it was last Friday, the act and deed of Protestant divines. Six students. What a miracle it was, my beloved, that out of so many hundreds of students of Zerat Oxford, only six should be found guilty of praying, reading, and expounding the scriptures. This shows the faithfulness of their vigilant tutors in guarding them against such pernicious practices. Now from this, observe that there were but six students in all the university who could be detected in those evils of praying, much to the honor of that learned body. Second, that those being expelled, now there are none left in all the colleges to take upon them to pray, read, and expound the scriptures. Therefore, gentlemen may safely send their sons to that fountain of learning without fearing that they will become religious, there being none left now to ensnare them. Next, they belong to Edmund Hall. It seems they love to be together, from where it may be gathered that they loved one another, a fault which the heathens accused Christians of old with, but from which mankind in general is now fairly free of. It appears as if this Edmund Hall was the only place at Oxford in which praying people were to be found. But it is hoped that the governors of that hall will be disciplined for their carelessness in allowing the students to read the Bible and seek after religion, seeing as it's contrary to the sense of this university. The students were expelled from the university, deprived of the rights and privileges of the king's loving subjects, or, as the word signifies, they were driven out, forced away, and banished from the university. This religious act was performed by the vice-chancellor after a hearing of several hours. I remember when Bishop Hooper was sent for by Queen Mary, the pious Bishop of London, and my Lord Chancellor was determined to have him burnt. But yet, to make a show of justice, they would give him a hearing, while intending not to swerve from their bloody design. So in like manner, our venerable tutors were determined not to suffer praying persons to breathe the university air. Yet, being tied to form, they gave him a hearing. A hearing of several hours. Ah, my beloved, you may see how remarkably the scriptures are fulfilled in this learned body of divines, where it says, Hear you, but understand not. See you, but perceive not. We come to the crime for which they have been expelled from the university, and I know it's a heinous crime indeed. This would appear without illustrating it from the character of the expellers, namely Mr. Vice-Chancellor and the heads of houses, but as I love to leave no stone unturned, for your better information, I will explain it. What was their crime then, my beloved? Was it drinking? No, no, it was not drinking, for they were very temperate. Was it whoring then, the common practice of many students? No, it was not whoring either for their lives are said to have been very exemplary. I wish, my beloved, it had been no worse. But what was it then? Was it swearing, fighting, and abusing their fellow students? No, for they shunned the other students as a wise man will shun an attorney. So much can be gathered from our text, which shows that they met together among themselves. But it was praying that my beloved was part of their crime. Six young men were expelled from the university for praying. For Mr. Vice-Chair and the heads of houses will suffer no praying people to continue in the university. 
Reading and expounding the scriptures was another part of their crime. But what in the name of the Pope can students have to do with the scriptures? What a pity it is that the Bible is not locked up in the Vatican. But letting that pass, we find that learning to expound the scriptures is no part of the employment of students. Six young men being expelled from the university for reading and expounding the scriptures. What added to their guilt was that they carried their religion to a private house. What can private people have to do with religion? They should do what their forefathers did, that is, give up their consciences and understandings to the guidance of their venerable priest. Is it not that gentlemen in black know and understand religion, but every private person must be dabbling in it contrary to the sense of this university? I know, my beloved, that the clergy cannot thrive as they do if every private house must become a worshipping temple. But there's little reason to fear this, seeing our text informs us that the doctors of the university are determined to prevent it, for six young men were expelled from the university for being religious in a private house. Another part of their crime was that they held Methodist tenets. This same Methodist, my beloved, is a cramp word gathered out of old books by men of learning and applied to those who pray, read, and expound the scriptures, and sing hymns in private houses, a people never to be tolerated by the clergy. You'll observe that the same hard word, which the nation has long rung with, first of all was given to the sons of Esculapius as a name of honor, and about thirty years ago was by learned men raised up as the witch of Endor, who seems to have been a clergywoman too, raised the ghost of old Samuel, these same sons of Esculapius were physicians, surgeons, and apothecaries in their day, but then they were quite methodical. For instance, they did not have the method of wearing large wigs, gold-headed canes, and of wheeling about the streets in their chariots. With respect to their doctoring and surgery, they were guided chiefly by the dictates of nature, without the abstruse methods of art. At last, there arose a great man, and his name was Galen, a mighty man for dissecting apes. For it ought to be observed that in his days in pagan lands there were very few criminals who deserved death, and fewer still who were given to the surgeons. Well, what should he do, you think? Why, my beloved, being blessed with better stars at his nativity than his predecessors, he took their confused and unscientific practices and reduced them to method, i.e., form and order. Well, this great man, being principal of the College of Physicians, he taught his pupils to observe orderly rules, otherwise method, from which his disciples were in honor called Methodists. So much for learning, now for doctrine. Amongst the clergy, there have always been a great number who did not love praying, singing of hymns, reading, and expounding the scriptures. The like may be said of the students. What they aimed at was a good living without much work, and as in a certain place says, those men care not if the devil takes the flock provided they can just get the fleece. On the other hand, there have been some who love to pray, to sing hymns, to read and expound the scriptures, who if they were not permitted to do it in public houses or churches would do it in private houses, to no small disgrace of the other gentlemen. Well, my beloved, these are the people who have been called Methodists, fanatics, and enthusiasts. Now, a word or two about their tenets, and then I 
dismiss this head, for really their tenets being destructive of priestcraft must by no means be encouraged. First and foremost, they think that a man ought to attest no articles of faith but what he believes to be true. Second, they think that a man ought not to profess to my Lord Bishop that he believes all the 39 articles of the established church to be the true faith of the gospel when he secretly believes in his heart that they are false. They think that a man should not profess to his lordship that he is moved by the Holy Ghost to desire the office of deacon when he considers it in his heart a delusion and hysteria for any man to pretend to be moved by the Holy Ghost these days. They think that after a man has subscribed to the 39 articles and solemnly sworn that he believes them, that he should not go and preach doctrines directly opposite to the said articles. They think that no man ought to be permitted to enter the pulpit whose life and conversation is degraded. These, with a great many other tenets as well, each equally ridiculous to maintain, and therefore, though tolerated by king and parliament, the heads of houses will never endure them in the university. The students defended their doctrines by the 39 articles of the established church. I know. I am worried, too, that this doctor has himself tinctured with Methodist tenets, for nobody nowadays besides Methodists consider the 39 articles of the established church as any test of doctrine. As for the clergy, it is well known that they're mostly dissenters from the doctrine in the articles and prayer book. Ah, beloved, if the truth was known, it would be found that this same doctor also prays to God and reads his Bible, or how else should he take part with these young men whom the heads of houses have expelled from the university for praying, reading, and expounding the scriptures? Besides, he would not have spoken so highly of their piety and exemplariness, as the text tells us he did, seeing the sense of the university was that their praying, reading, etc. was vicious. I fear, my beloved, that if the heads of houses do not keep a good look out after this same doctor, it will be difficult for them to keep the university clear from those who pray and read and expound the scriptures. But his motion was overruled. What is one Methodist among a host of divines? Thus, my beloved, I have gone through the first part of my plan and shall proceed to the second. Now, to raise a notable point of doctrine from it, which is that the conduct of the heads of houses in expelling the six young men from praying, reading, and expounding the scriptures is defensible from the conduct of clergy in all ages and countries, no matter what critics may say. To clear this, I will produce four instances, all of which I will take out of that old antiquated book called the Scripture, a book which sets forth the true spirit of the university doctors to the very life, the first in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, where some transactions of the established church at Babylon are recorded, concerning which I will make the following notes, that the religion by law established was the religion of the golden image which Nebuchadnezzar, at the request of the clergy, made and set up on the plains of Dura, a place, my beloved, which, if we may give credit to travelers there, very much resembles the plains of Oxford. Next, the clergy, who, you, who as you know, have always been wonderfully fond of a golden god, would by no means suffer an act of toleration to be passed in favor of Methodists and dissenters, but on the contrary got an act of Parliament on their side, forcing the strictest uniformity in religion, 
and threatening to death all the dissenters. For it seems this prince was too easy, and like some of our former princes in England, was afraid of the clergy, and so he was obliged to listen to them. And so he declared an act of uniformity, which they hoped would bring good grist to their mill. Next, this law established, the clergy were impatient to have the subjects of the great king brought to the test, which they thought best to do by appointing a public feast, on which it was required that every man and mother's son should fall down before and worship this golden god set up by the king as a tool of the parsons. That there were four degrees of learned men, whom I suppose dwelt in the University of Babylon. First, there were magicians, who were with them the same as doctors of divinity are with us in our universities. Secondly, there were astrologers, or men of learned sciences, much the same as our masters of arts. Thirdly, there were sorcerers, who I suppose were either fellows of the college or bachelors of arts, appointed to be tithe-gatherers. And fourthly, there were the Chaldeans, or students of their divinity and other fine arts. That all those gentry, who were very vigilant in discovering and informing against dissenters, in verse 8, when at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews, that is to say, certain young students being spurred on to it by tutors who did not care to appear in such a dirty affair themselves. Strict as the law was, there were some who took upon them to pray to God, like those six young gentlemen who were expelled from the university for praying. But what did they think? Why, truly they were dissenters and Methodists, for they would not conform to the form of worship by laws established. Therefore they were dissenters and they were Methodists. That is, if praying to God makes a man a Methodist. But what followed, you ask? Why, as soon as they were found out to be nonconformists, the doctors of divinity accused them of rebellion. And had the king been as fond of burning dissenters as they were, these men would have been thrice executed, without having another chance for their lives. But he was not quite so fiery, but gave them another trial. If you'll read the chapter through, you'll see the outcome of it, and how the doctors of the university were confounded and the dissenters were readmitted to the king's favor, for God did work for them. I pass on to the days of Darius, a prince who had a praying nobleman for his first minister of state, and for all I know to the contrary, he might be the lord of the treasury as well as the chancellor of the empire. His name was Daniel, and by birth a Jew. Well, my beloved, being so very great, he was envied by his inferior placements, though they kept it secret and spoke kindly to his face, and he was very much abused by those who were lower. If we may judge ancient times from what appears in ages more modern, we may suppose that the times took a turn something like the following. One man cries out against his being a favorite and too intimate with the queen or the queen's mother, as their kinsmen do upon similar occasions, and another complains about his being a foreigner and a captive so highly dignified, while the natives are neglected. Perhaps their newspapers might be stuffed with clamors against the exotic favorite, and the incensed mob might be taught to cry out, Liberty and Babylon forever! but no Jew, no favorite, no captive. Well, my beloved, all the ins and outs might have fretted themselves to death without being able to do anything against this prime minister, the same Daniel, the king's favorite, but they applied to the principal clergy, the heads of houses. But I ask the reverend doctors, the magicians, the masters of the art of astrology, etc., etc. No sooner embarked on the popular cause 
and found that they were more than a match for the favorite. Well, my beloved, the heads of houses and the disaffected statesmen met together and consulted what was the best way to overturn the state of this praying favorite. But the conduct of Daniel was so exemplary that they knew they should be able to find nothing wrong in him unless they could entrap him in matters of religion. Therefore, having first persuaded the king that the church was in danger, they urged the necessity of a law being made, prohibiting any man's praying to God. Well, Darius the king was not such a novice in politics that he knew the necessity of having the clergy on his side, and therefore, though he could not see into that part of their mysterious divinity, made the decree according to the plan conceived by that learned body. But it is thought that he would have disagreed with them had he known that they were aiming at the life of his faithful favorite. But how stiff are these biblicists! For this Daniel went on praying to God, reading and expounding the scriptures in a private house, despite what the king had, under the direction of the clergy, ordained otherwise. This was enough to have provoked the heads of houses to have expelled him from the university had he belonged to it, but not belonging to it, they were obliged to be satisfied with putting him to death instead of expelling him. Now, lest any should object to the clergy having the honor of devising this scheme, because there is no notice taken of them in history, then let it be observed that it was never known that many great men or noblemen were ever given to interfere in religious matters. Statesmen in all ages have been wise enough to take up with the religion that the priests have prescribed to them. Therefore, if you give honor to anybody in this affair, let it be given to the clergy. And I pass on to make a comparison between that affair and this before us. They could find no occasion of fault in Daniel. So it was with the six young men who were expelled from the university, for their lives were said to be pious and exemplary. They thought they might entrap him in some matters concerning the law of his God. So likewise, these young men, although they were no horsters, no gamblers, no drunkards, etc., yet they could be trapped in matters relating to their God. And third, this same Daniel, despite the penalty denounced in the edict against any who should take upon them to pray to God perversely, rebelliously, and obstinately persisted in his usual apostolic, puritanical, nonconformistical, and methodistical manner of praying to God in a private house. So no doubt, but that these six young men knew that it was against the will of the heads of houses, etc., that any of the students under their care should pray to God in a private house. For, says our text, six young men were expelled from the university for praying, reading, and expounding the scriptures in a private house, and yet they persisted in it. Finally, Daniel, president of the princes, kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God at other times. But how will you be able to find such puritanic conduct among our British noblemen? For I know that a praying nobleman is pretty near as great a rarity as a white crow. Our second instance of clerical conduct, which gives credence to the late actions of the heads of houses, I will bring from the clergy of that famous university at Jerusalem in the days of Christ and his apostles. In the established church of Judea, there were articles of faith and a canon law, which all the clergy professed to believe, regard, and defend. This confession of faith was first compiled by Moses, the founder of that church, and afterwards ratified and confirmed by Ezra and Nehemiah, their two principal reformers. 
even as the 39 Articles of the Established Church were ratified and confirmed by our English reformers. I know you'll be ready to think that the clergy deemed it an honor to tread in the steps of those pious reformers, but I say, my beloved, you are greatly mistaken. For the heads of houses at the University of Jerusalem, even as many have done since, make the commandment void to establish their own traditions. Perhaps you'll be ready to startle like the cows in July when bit by envious flies when you hear of a university at Jerusalem, but I assure you, it was there that the doctors or teachers of the law dwelt, and their law was their divinity. Now where do neighboring dogs delight to resort so much as to a place where the carcass is? Likewise, we will see swarms of reverend doctors at the university. These Pharisees, lawyers, scribes, and doctors were all gownsmen, but whether they wore the very same uniforms with the gentlemen of Oxford University, my author does not say. Yet so much can be gathered from the history that if the wandering Jew who has lived ever since these times I am speaking of, should chance in his travels to call it Oxford, he would think upon his longevity, that from the manners of the heads of houses, that old Jerusalem rose again from its ruins. But we'll drop this and come to the matter at hand, which is to give a just account of those clergy, that you may see that the heads of houses have not departed a jot from the rules of their clerical ancestors." The Jerusalem clergy found their living depended upon subscribing to the articles given by Moses and the homilies compiled by the prophets. They could, for the sake of a venerable reputation and a fattish living, or as you would say, for the good of the church, very readily subscribe or attest to them upon oath, though many of them, called Sadducees, didn't believe anything about them. Now, not to take notice of the vulgar opinion— namely that there are a great many Sadducees in our universities, I cannot but observe the weakness of those who blame such clergy, who swear to articles they do not believe, seeing that this is the practice of the clergy of the first established church in the world. More than 1,700 years later, there arose some dissenters who made a great stir among the people and brought great uneasiness upon the clergy. I do not mean that those were dissenters from the articles of faith which were of old given to the saints, but they were dissenters from the clergy, and did not spare to detect their errors both in principles and practice, a practice which our modern Methodists are said to be guilty of, to the great concern of the heads of houses. Those were laymen, not regularly educated at the university, and who took upon them to preach without receiving authority from the Archbishop of Jerusalem. I think his name was Caiaphas, and I know that he was the primate of all Judea. Well, those men were not only laymen, but the riffraff of them, even fishermen. No, they were not attorneys, or merchant clerks, nor were they alchemists or apothecaries, but just fishermen. And yet they preached, and yet they expounded the scriptures to the great confusion of the holy trade of priestcraft. The established church was now thought to be in danger, and how it could be thought so was something strange, seeing those praying and preaching dissenters proved all their doctrine from the articles and homilies given by Moses and the prophets, the same as our modern Methodists prove their doctrines from the articles and homilies of the Church of England. Now I return to the clergy at Jerusalem, and you cannot remember how active they were in working for the destruction of Jesus Christ. And when he was risen from the dead and ascended into glory, they stopped at nothing for their zeal for their established church. But immediately they were aware of the power of the apostles' doctrine. By apostles, I mean those who took upon them to pray and read and expound the scriptures in private houses. Seeing, I say, their fervor in preaching, 
They cried out against them as persons drunk with new wine, by which we may understand enthusiasm. Well, my beloved, this is the very cry of the clergy against all who preach to Jesus and the resurrection, and from their mouths the vulgar catch the sound. So that with many a Methodist, an enthusiast, a dissenter, and a fanatic, these are thought to be synonymous terms. From here we learn that slander may as well be thrown in a sermon as in a burlesque, will issue with as good a grace from a pulpit as from the theater. It is very remarkable how zealous those of the gentlemen of the gown who aimed no higher than a good fat appointment have always shown themselves when the doctrine of Christ in its simplicity has been preached. Why? Truly because it lays an axe to the root of the tree of priestcraft and throws down the importance of the clergy into the dirt. If the clergy were all to observe the rules given by Christ to his disciples in his Sermon upon the Mount, where would be their riches and grandeur, their coaches, their prestige, their plate? But you know that these rules are as different from this craft in which we parsons get our wealth, as heaven is different from hell. But as priestcraft is lucrative, it will be sure to find supporters, while the private houses have got one head left to lead them. In Acts 5, we find that Peter and the rest of his praying, reading, and scripture-expounding brethren were brought before the vice-chancellor and the heads of houses for a hearing, and after a hearing of several hours they took counsel to slay them. But there was one, Gamaliel, the head of a certain house who sided with them, and probably proved their doctrine from the articles of the Jewish church as by law established. I recommend that this same Gamaliel was sullied with the doctrine they preached just as one man of Oxford who defended the faith of the six young men who were expelled from the university for praying, etc., may be suspected to secretly have believed the articles which he once subscribed, even though he dared not to avow his faith openly. There is one thing in this account that is something remarkable, namely, the wise motion of Dr. Gamaliel overruled the bloody designs of the priests— but it was not so at the other university, for although one man at Oxford defended and proved the Methodist doctrine from the articles of the church, and spoke highly of the piety and exemplariness of their lives, his motion was overruled and the six young men were expelled. Another thing we may take notice of, namely, those ancient doctors had a law by which they could put people to death for praying, reading, and expounding the scriptures, but our universities have no such law but it is in no way doubtful that the same zeal which will, under a Protestant government, expel the students of a university for praying, etc., would, for the same reasons, burn offenders at the stake were they suddenly given a popish king. So that if the heads of houses were less bloody in their designs than their ancestors, it's not for us to give them the benefit of the doubt, but it is merely the Protestant restraints which they are under. It would be endless, my beloved, to point out all the instances in which the Jewish and Oxford clergy agree. I will therefore leave them to another occasion and will pass on to another famous church in that part of the world, and after that I shall come nearer home within our own kin. This famous church was the Church of Diana at Ephesus, and I know in this church there was many a good living in the gift of the university, and I say that the heads of houses were very careful that none should enjoy one of them unless he was well known to be a true son of the church, that is to say, a promoter of the sale of the shrines of Diana, and a worshipper of the image that fell down from Jupiter. 
This Diana was in her day a lady remarkable for hunting stags, and ever since, her clergy had been as remarkable in the hunting of not stags, but a good appointment. Now, my beloved, this same huntress was the personage worshipped by most people of Asia, and she had many, very many, clergy who adored her for the sake of gain, and for by this craft we have our wealth, they said. There was a famous university for the training up of young gentlemen in the holy craft of making shrines for the goddess, and a lucrative craft they found it, my beloved, for they had in their power to sell a brazen shrine for a golden prize, a thing which others besides them practice. This university was at Ephesus, a very populous city, where water was cheap but fire was very dear, and there were many colleges and halls for the training up of young men in the craft of getting wealth. Every hall had a head, and over the heads of houses was a vice-chancellor, the Reverend Dr. Demetrius by name. As for praying, reading, and expounding the scriptures, they did not meddle with them, but were to the highest degree intent upon getting wealth. Well, they carried this craft for many years, until at last there came some itinerant preachers to town who made it their business to pray to God to read and expound the scriptures and sing hymns in private houses contrary to the sense of that university. There was no small mortification to the clergy, who knew very well that if real religion, or praying, reading, or expounding the scriptures was tolerated, that it would put an end to their lucrative priestcraft, and that their reverences would fall into disgrace. But to prevent such a catastrophe, the Reverend Dr. Demetrius, vice-chancellor, assembled the heads of houses to consult what was best to be done and it was resolved unanimously to cry out, The church is in danger, and that under the pretense of saving this church, they might save their own prophets. Well, they cried out that the church was in danger till they had sufficiently inflamed the rabble. Then they laid hold on the men, had them before the heads of houses, who gave them such treatment as praying people may expect to meet from the clergy of Oxford. It happened, however, as in a late case, that there was one man of integrity and honor amongst them, much like the one defender at Oxford, only with this difference, the defender in Ephesus was a notary public, the other is a gentleman in holy orders. Well, this attorney, it seems being recorder of the city, thought the clergy carried their authority a little beyond the rules of moderation and decency, a thing by no means uncommon for some gentlemen of the cap and gown. This town clerk took up the cause of the itinerants, in a spirited, sensible manner, defended their conduct and tenets, not from the thirty-nine articles, but from the articles of natural religion and morality, and spoke very highly of their piety and good behavior. I cannot but remark that in this affair the town clerk was more successful than the gentleman who pleaded the cause of the six Methodists at Oxford. The former overruled the purposes of Diana's clergy, but the university clergy overruled the motion of the latter, according to our text. For though he defended their doctrine from the thirty-nine articles of the established church, and spoke very highly of their piety and the exemplariness of their lives, these six young men were expelled the university for praying, reading, and expounding the scriptures, and for singing hymns in a private house. Why? Why, truly, my beloved, because praying, reading, and expounding the scriptures is not the craft by which we get our wealth. For proof of this proposition, I refer you to stubborn facts, namely, you will seldom see a divine who makes a point of praying, reading, and expounding the scriptures, and of singing hymns in private or public houses, who keep their lifestyles, or possess fat wages. 
I know, my beloved, that one sentry eats more honey than four worker bees. But I pass now on to the fourth established church, the clergy of which in all respects possessed the spirit of the university divines, or heads of houses. And I say it is a church of great pretensions, the clergy of which are as infallible as the most holy mother Pope Joan, that lady who was Christ's vicar and Peter's successor, and carried the keys of heaven, hell, and purgatory in her pocket, when she was in her prime and her moon shone at full. I guess by this time you know that I mean the good, old, one, Catholic, Roman, infallible, pontifical, universal mother church in the bosom of which our forefathers slept so snug, wrapped about with abbey lands as with warm blankets. And if I may speak the sentiments of my black-robed brethren of the university, we wish for the sake of those lands that we were all safe rolling in her bosom once more. In the days of Elizabeth, the Vestal Queen, the clergy suffered great discontent. Why? Because praying, reading, and scripture-expounding people were suffered to live, and were even tolerated in the university, which was a kind of counterbalance to the earnings their reverences had enjoyed in the days of Mary of Scarlet Memory. For as soon as this orthodox lady, Queen Mary, had ascended the throne, matters took a very agreeable turn, and the right reverend bishops, Bonner and Gardner, began to work for the good of the church. Like true-bred disciples, they searched every corner of the land for matters to work upon. And who should they pitch upon but those ministers and others who prayed to God, read and expounded the scriptures and sung hymns? For those clergy were much like all others— they discouraged praying to any besides the saints of their own canonization. And as for the scriptures, they found it in their best interest that those scriptures should be concealed. Who was Cranmer, my beloved? Why, truly, though he was primate of England, he took upon himself to pray, read, and expound the scriptures. And as one such, according to the laws of Trent Council, he was expelled from the convocation and burnt to death as an enemy of the clergy. Latimer and Ridley and Hooper and Taylor and Bradford and Hunter and Philpot, etc., were all of them guilty of these heinous offenses, of praying, of reading, of expounding the scriptures, and of singing of hymns. The same crimes with which the Oxford Methodists were charged and for which they were expelled from the university. So, beloved, I will raise the following remarks. Number one, that the spirit of Oxford has been the same in all ages— a noble spirit of opposition to Methodist tenets. The magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the Sadducees, the doctors, the shrine-makers, the inquisitors, the Roman bishops, and the vice-chancellors and heads of houses are all of the same religion, namely, to oppose praying, reading, and expounding the scriptures. Second, that the state of religion in our land is likely to soon be upon a very respectable footing, seeing that no more than six out of the vast number of students at Oxford took upon them to pray to God, to read and expound the scriptures. So it is hoped that many parishes in England will likely to have clergy who will let their parishioners have their own way and go quietly to hell without disturbing them. For if care was not taken to suppress praying people in the university, we should have the nation swarming with praying people, much to the detriment of priestcraft. It is notable that we have found out more fully what four of those six gentlemen were before they set foot in the university. 
One was a tax collector, another a smith, a third a barber, and the fourth a teacher. As it is written by the Reverend Dr. Oxoniensis Gazetteer, April 8, 1768. And I know, my beloved, though my kindred are professors of such arts, they are to be held as dangerous sciences, and therefore must not be tolerated by the clergy. First and foremost, the clergy has suffered much rudeness from the blacksmith, and while the bitterness of the loss of Abbey lands belches from our stomachs, we sophisticated gentlemen will never forgive the blacksmiths. Why? Because he was a blacksmith's son, Lord Thomas Cromwell, by name who stripped the church, that is to say, the clergy, of those warm, those fat Abbey lands. No more blacksmiths, I pray you now, we'll have none of them. Therefore Mr. Vice-Chair did well in expelling the man, because he had been a blacksmith. One other of them was a tax collector, and I suppose Mr. Vice-Chair thought that the difference between tax-gathering and tithe-gathering, being so very trifling, that after a young man had sufficiently learned at home to gather taxes, it was quite needless for him to come to the university to learn to gather tithes. I know, my beloved, that the old grudge between the Pharisees and the tax collectors has not yet subsided, for as the learned Oxford observes, the vice-chair expelled a man, the university for having been a tax collector. And the next place, another had been a barber, that is to say, a shaver. Believe me, it is dangerous to play with edge tools, and razors are sharp things, but sharpness must not be admitted at Oxford, a shaver, if tolerated, might be as bad as a blacksmith. But no more of this. We'll have no more shavers, my beloved. The fourth was a teacher in a school. What kind of school? The man from Oxford does not tell us. But this schoolmaster who taught under it was justly expelled. Why? Because he departed so very far from the rule established among students. The common rule observed by the hopeful young gentleman of the gown is before they have learned the first lesson of themselves, they conclude that they are able to teach others. The proof is in how many dull clergy there are. But this man, though he had been accustomed to teaching others, debased himself by receiving instructions from others. But such a poor opinion of one's own self is never going to add to the importance of the parson. And so it must not be tolerated. I will not now say any more. I am intending to soon write a commentary on the Gospel of Oxford, as written by the learned, the just, the accurate, and the reverend doctors at Oxford. One of my favorite lines from the from the and it's weird calling this a sermon because it's not a sermon. It wasn't ever given. It's not meant to be serious. But the the, the quote unquote priestcraft offended speech may be a sermon in a sense. Uh, but one of my favorite quotes was basically where he where he says something to the effect of uh, Oxford, you know, expelled these students for praying and only expelled six of them. Thankfully, the Oxford professors have done a wonderful job of making sure only six of their many students could be expelled for such a heinous crime as praying. And there's just just the the, the beauty. I mean, if you were an Oxford student or if you were an Oxford professor and you read that line, the sting of it would just hit you so hard, right? I mean, even just saying it now, 250 years later, I'm like, whew, I'm glad that's not me he's writing that about, right? Like, that's just gotta, I think there's just times when this is effective in a way that just regularly saying, hey, it was bad of you to do that. 
uh, it wouldn't be. And in and, and its day, it exploded. I mean, people loved it. They thought this was hilarious. It skewered Oxford and really made Oxford embarrassed. And interestingly, Oxford actually, this specific hall, Edmund Hall, became actually far more conservative and evangelical over the decades following this incident. Like people, they were so ashamed at how far they had gone that some of the later more conservative people were known for coming from this specific area where this would happen. It was as if the shame of what occurred was so bad they never wanted to kind of go down that road again. So perhaps this sermon was effective at doing what needed to be done. Either way, I really enjoyed it. And it made me think, I was, I, and maybe someone, one of our listeners out there will write it, but I, I was like, man, if you were to try to write this sermon today, you were trying to write the satire sermon that gets people today, what, what would you write it on? Like, what would be that thing that we write the satire on. I haven't come up with one yet. Maybe you will come up with it. What it what what it could it be? I don't know, but I'm cur- I'm sure someone at the Babylon Bee will probably come up with it before us. But whoever it is, I, I was thinking about it. Man, what would what would it be that you could preach on satirically that would make the point that hasn't hasn't been getting through to the world yet? This sermon was sent in by Nicholas Graves, personal friend of mine. I am grateful. I even got to see him over the summer when I was traveling through the States. He's a good guy, and I'm really glad that he he himself knows a lot about history. Uh, and he has uh, he does a lot of stuff out there. So I was grateful that I got to uh, run into him over the summer and grateful that he sent this sermon my way. He was basic. I asked him, I was like, do you want to read the sermon? He did. So this is his debut sermon for Revive Thoughts. And I, again, I think it was, it's, it, it, in some sense, if you know this guy, you would know that this is the perfect debut sermon for him, that he would find a satire, sarcastic sermon like this. Uh, it, it all fits perfectly. So thank you so much, Nick, for reading this one for us. And uh, if you have not, Yet, if you're listening to the sermon, you're going, wow, what an interesting story. What a unique uh, take on history. Well, hey, thank you very much. We do ask you and would maybe even appreciate if you would leave us a five-star review uh, or on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Leave us a positive comment or on YouTube. Leave us a, whatever you are, wherever you're listening. Throw us something out there that we can get. This is the kind of unique history that I feel like Revive Thoughts is designed to bring back to life, to let you know these controversies from 250 years ago when Oxford students were expelled for praying. And I, I, I love that we get to do this kind of stuff. And these ratings always help out. Whenever these get out there, it helps bump us up and all those uh, internet algorithm things that are out there that are going on. And that really helps other people find our show. So we really appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this, we hope that you'll give us a five-star review. Again, Apple is always the king of those kind of things. But Spotify, YouTube, anywhere you go, anywhere you can, it helps out. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.